Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. righteousness of God in our Savior Jesus Christ grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord again I don't really have a title for this this is just basically introduction or overview uh, here this evening Uh, but we'll get into this tonight father I come to you today Lord I'm so grateful Lord Jesus that Lord in these scriptures in this word is life I pray, oh God, it is a life, God, for us individually and collectively. I pray, oh Lord Jesus, your word, Lord, works. God, we know it time and time again, Lord, that it works. I pray, oh Lord, that we could just herald it, Lord Jesus, from the mountaintop. Lord God, and have it, Lord Jesus, invested in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Everyone say amen. Amen. You may be seated. There's nothing so so precious is God's word this has nothing to do with this but I was thinking as I was praying God's word working and uh, on my way home Sunday night late Sunday night I was watching or slash listening on the plane to a documentary on Billy Graham that I had downloaded and uh, he was in there talking about his years of ministry and how he did a lot of you know didn't have like uh, computers early on in his life and so he did a lot of tearing pieces of scripture out of the Bible and pasting it in his notes and a lot of his preaching was nothing more but quoting scripture and he made a statement he said he said I just found that there wasn't anything more authoritative than the word of the Lord just being spoken and that's true whether you're saint sinner no God don't know God there's nothing more authoritative than just his word being spoken First Peter, we have done a few weeks ago, or I should say a few weeks ago, but more so back in the earlier part of this year. So you have First Peter and you have Second Peter, and they are not, though, just like on the same horse, so to speak. Uh, these, they are dealing with and addressing two different issues that's in the church, two different issues that's among the church. So what we necessarily learned in First Peter is not going to transfer over and we're along that same vein of thought necessarily in Second Peter. Uh, the similarities beyond their names, First and Second Peter, and having the same author and having the same audience, their similarities are quite few and far between among those things I just mentioned to you. They share similar names, yes, at least in our English Bibles, that is, of First and Second Peter. But they also share the author being the Apostle Peter, which uh, there are always going to be critics. If you do any study, and there's always going to be a critic that says, although he says that I'm the one that wrote this, he's not the one that wrote it. It's just going to happen. Almost every book of the Bible, you can guarantee there's going to be a critic that's going to try to debunk Uh, who the author was, especially even if they said that I am the author. As we have studied epistles before, for the most part, epistles in the beginning of the epistle tells who is writing it, who they're writing to, and they give some type of little formal or informal greeting. Uh, For that matter, just think here with me for a moment. Usually if there's somebody that's trying to write uh, a, a false writings or is writing under the name of somebody that's known, they would take a person's name that was known, that was reputable. They would write something under that name that was unorthodox or was false teaching. 
So whenever you look, though, at Peter, his name is being used as the author, but he's not writing some type of false doctrine. It's true according to the rest of the scope of the Scripture, which would just do nothing more but underscore Peter is the one that probably wrote this. You know, this is not somebody that's trying to use his name uh, for their own use or benefit because 2 Peter has sound doctrine that's in accordance with the rest of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, The opening verse claims then, for our purposes, verse number one, the authorship being Simon Peter, who even a few verses later in verse number 16, he attests to the fact that they, he's speaking of himself along with James and John, that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he's alluding all the way back to the Gospels whenever uh, Peter himself, James and John, went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the Lord's garments shimmering and glowing and see as it though there was a change with him and Moses and Elias showed up there on that mount. And so again, that does nothing but endorse that this truly is Peter who has authored uh, this particular book of the Bible. And so 2 Peter, when we read who he is writing to, and it's always important to know who you're writing to for the scope of this book, he has no particular recipients in mind, it would seem, at first in our reading, because the Bible says in verse 1 that he is addressing them that have obtained like precious faith with us. So that's kind of, you know, paint with a broad brush. I'm talking to those that have like precious faith with us. But when we go a little bit deeper, as we get deeper into Second Peter, we will come to find out that his audience is the very same as it were in the first book of Peter. According to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 1, Peter says the second epistle, which what this is, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And so if this is the second epistle he's addressing to them, he must have addressed a first epistle to them, which we notably uh, agree to be first Peter. And so the people that he wrote to in the first First Peter is the people he's writing to in the second Peter, and he so happens to include them as being people who have also obtained the like precious faith that he had obtained. And so with that in mind, uh, it's probably then going to be dated after First Peter, which would be somewhere around 66 or 67 A.D., whenever Peter wrote these things. And his audience being the same as those in First Peter, if you'll remember, First Peter wrote to those that are scattered among some strangers, scattered among certain locations of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. You can read that in the first few verses of First Peter. He wrote in that time and now to the northern part of Asia Minor, which today would be known as modern Turkey. But nevertheless, he is addressing again a large span of people, and that's important. People of diversity of land, diversity of culture, uh, of, of, of education. As a matter of fact, predominantly his audience is probably a Gentile audience with uh, a segment of them being the Jews. Uh, but in reality, in First Peter, if you remember, he wrote primarily to strangers and pilgrims not because of being literal strangers and pilgrims, but they were strangers and pilgrims because of their new birth experience. Their new birth experience set them apart from the rest of the world as your new birth experience sets you apart from the rest of the world. And so he's still talking to those people, whether they be Jew or Gentile. We all need a new birth experience, correct? And that new birth experience, regardless of our race, nationality, sets us apart, all right, unto the Lord. But interestingly, in 1 Peter, he only pinpoints the Christians by their geographical location, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. But when we get to 2 Peter, he takes those same people 
But he goes a little further than just location. He pinpoints them by their spiritual experience to them that have obtained the like precious faith as we. And he does that, I believe, with, with, with intention. Uh, because we're going to find out in the book of Second Peter that he is going to be combating a lot of false teachers, a lot of false prophets. And he's not talking about Christians that are just in per se a location. He's talking about Christians that have a spiritual experience. And he wants them to be convinced of their spiritual, their spiritual experience because there are going to come other quote-unquote spiritual things their way that they're going to have to know where their feet are planted. And that's not just good uh, information for Peter's day. That's good information for our day. Amen. We need to know where our feet are planted. And so whenever you come to the second chapter of Second Peter, and if you were to take that and put the book of Jude side by side, you're going to find that they are very, very similar. As a matter of fact, it is almost in some areas word for word redundancy between the second chapter of Second Peter and the book of Jude. Now, I would like to tell you that I am so smart that I can tell you that Jude borrowed from Peter or that Peter borrowed from Jude. But I don't know which it is. For that matter, they both may have borrowed from a similar source. For that matter, I don't know which is which. But I do know whenever they wrote, in our English Bibles, it's so similar. But in the language of the Greek, their wording is different. Just like if I were to take something and read it and paraphrase it in my own words, and Brother Mason would take the very same thing and read it, paraphrase it in his own words, the overall meaning may be the same, but the word usage that we may use may be different. He might use the word love, and I might use the word admire. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? And so whenever we come to second chapter of Second Peter and Jude, uh, it seems very so the same. Don't know if they borrowed from each other. Don't know if they took it from the same source. But nevertheless, uh, it's, it's well known among us now. Some may even think, well, maybe Peter, it was Peter maybe perhaps borrowed it from Jude, and now Peter is throwing it out there because Peter is more well known than Jude, okay? He has more clout than Jude. And so, you know, if they didn't listen to Jude, maybe they'll listen to Peter. Huh? I've had some people, you know, say before, if such and such says it, it'll go through. But if that person says it, forget it. Just because they have a different status in life and uh, they have a little bit, people put a little more credence in that person because of their position or role. So maybe that happened. I don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, if, if Peter just brought it from Jude or Jude perhaps brought it from Peter, maybe, maybe Jude was just reminding every, everybody something that Peter had already said. We'll never know. People probably think they know, but we'll never know in reality. But nevertheless, in 2 Peter, the words that are being spoken that are very similar to Jude's, in 2 Peter, he is using that information, urging his audience about false teachers. He's using it as a preventative measure. He's saying it's going to happen. They're going to come. This is going to come. You need to be aware of this. What's going to take place? What's going to happen? Whenever Jude is conveying the same information, he's dealing with circumstances that have already happened. As a matter of fact, you'll read how he talks about men have crept in unawares. It's already taken place. So Jude's being proactive with the information or being reactive really with the information and Peter's being proactive. He said it's going to happen. Jude, uh, Jude in that chapter, he's combating, he's combating the perversion of the doctrine of grace. People turning grace and just to a sloppy grace. He's combating that doctrine. But when we look at the second chapter of 2 Peter, Peter is dealing with the idea of people buying into the fact that maybe there's not going to be a catching away or the rapture of the church. Maybe there's not going to be, maybe there's not going to be a judgment of all things in the end. 
And so Peter is using it against those things, combating that idea, because that was something he's going to deal with in this book. People considering the idea that the catching away of the rapture of the church may not happen or that there is not going to be no judgment to come. Now, where does that rest then for the people of Peter's day? Well, I'll tell you what it's rest. Would they think it mattered really how they lived their life if there was no catching away, if there was no judgment to come? If someone could sell them a lie that there would never be a rapture, they would never have to worry about judgment to come, do you think that they would be too uh, worried about how they're living their life in the present? You want to talk about succumbing to a deception and a lie, a false teaching, if you will, that won't only change the outcome of destinies, but it will change the way that they live their life today. In reality, things have not changed much, folks. Because that same type of propagation, whether right out there in front of her face or not, underlyingly happens today that there is a convincing in the, the world, even sometimes the church world, that this second coming thing of the Lord is just so far-fetched. They've been talking about it for years. Or that you're being judged right now as you're living upon this earth. You don't have to worry about no future judgment. Right? And so these are the things that they are combating. Jude is dealing with those that have come from the outside in. And what we're going to learn, though, in 2 Peter, that I think is more scary than anything, is that Peter deals with those who have become corrupt on the inside. we got a mole among us. This is an inside job. And so when we consider that he's going to be combating false teachers in error, I tell you tonight that the fight against error the fight against false doctrine has been a fight of the centuries, if not a fight of the ages. There were those among, and if you'll just bear me a little time here, but there were those among the Corinthians that they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, Scripture says. Paul told the Ephesian elders as he was about ready to depart from Miletus in his farewell speech, he was on his way to Jerusalem. He told those old boys, he said, there's going to be grievous wolves that's going to come. They're not going to spare the flock. That men would arise from among them. The Ephesian elders, the church body, said they're going to be people that's going to rise from among you speaking perverse things to draw away disciples unto themselves. Paul even said in Timothy and in Titus, he stressed doctrine correctness and he predicted that there would be a people that would fall away from the faith being taken by seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. He even warned of the church or churches, if you will, that would become less than what they had been born into. Not enduring sound doctrine, but with itching ears, heaping to themselves people that are speaking fables. And so I tell you today, this whole concept of fighting error and, and fighting doctrine, incorrectness and false doctrine isn't something new for our day. It has happened since the ages, since the very beginning of time for that matter. And so it's in 2 Peter that Peter begins his letter with emphasis on that we need to know what we know and we need to grow in that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and have a sure setting in that. He said that we were 
born into this thing or that we have this precious faith through the righteousness of God. He later talks about how our grace and peace is to be multiplied through the knowledge of God in the Lord Jesus Christ because there have been and there will be false teachers. And I state it from my viewpoint today. There have been and there will be and there is false teachers. For that matter, Peter spoke to them that there was a departure from the way of truth all the way as old as during the flood generation when men's hearts were wicked continually, even going further back, if you will, when the angels of heaven lost their first estate of being in the heavenlies and cast down the third that was taken with the tail, if you will, of the enemy. So there's been this departure from the very beginning of time. There, in essence, there has always been some type of falling away. But thank God that in the middle of a falling away, there is a, there is a getting up unto as well. Amen. And I want to be accounted among those tonight, don't you? <clears throat> so Peter is going to let us know in this book that they are going to be fighting with an idea with, with, with concepts of people that are going to be in denial of the redemption that was given to them. And watch this now, that even going to deny the Lord who bought them. And that is pointing to denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. The lordship of him being master. Him being the one with the only say in our life. Denying the Lord that bought them. And so Peter's purpose, he wants to acquaint the people Here's what he's going to do in chapter number one. He's going to equate the people with what's genuine. He's going to acquaint the people with what's real, with what's true, an experiential knowledge of the Lord. Why? Because in the second chapter, he's going to say, here's these false teachers. Here's what they're going to do. He's wanting to acquaint us with the genuine so we won't be deceived by the false. Right? I know we've said a thousand times, they used to say in the banking world, the re before they had all this neat stuff, they put on bills and stuff to see if it's counterfeit. They used to say the way that they taught people to know what the counterfeit was is they constantly kept the genuine in their hand. And as long as they kept the genuine going through their hand, they would know when a counterfeit showed up because they become so familiar with what's genuine, they would know an oddball when they seen one. And so Peter's saying, if I can get you more acquainted with what's genuine, what's real, what's truth, expose you to that. Let you live, drink, smell, sleep with that. He says, you'll know when something of deception or a falsity comes your way. And so Peter wants this to be seared inside of their conscience. He wants it to be seared in their conscience that, that, that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is true that it's not a fabrication, it's not some story or fable that you've spoken of, some cunningly devised fable he'll speak of. He wants them to know that it is a fact, it is truth, and he also wants them to remember all of the truth that they have been taught so that whenever these false voices come, for that matter, false flamboyant, notable voices come that's among them speak, but they speak falsities, that they'll be able to say, uh-uh, I know better because I know what I've been taught and I know the truth that I've been taught and I'm not going to fall into this trap of false doctrine. And so, because the fact of the matter is this, if we have no biblical truth or biblical moorings or tethers or ties, we're in essence many times like a ship without a rudder. We'll be just conform with whatever way the wind blows, the sea rises and falls if we don't have that. So, 
I want you to consider a pair can contrast here just real quick. Some of the differences, just a couple. First Peter versus Second Peter, because these are two different beasts, somewhat by nature. In First Peter, you will remember that First Peter focused on the dangers from the outside, the outside world. In Second Peter, again, we're going to be looking at the dangers on the inside, inside what was called Christianity, inside what was called the church. In First Peter, First Peter was wrote. He was trying to help those that were suffering Christians, if you will. They were suffering with persecution from the exterior. But in 2 Peter, uh, it has been written to expose false teachers, false doctrine from people that claim to be, quote-unquote, Christians. There's no deeper deception than someone that's your own. Because it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, David in the scripture in the Psalms talking about how it was one of his own that hurt him. They took sweet counsel together. There isn't anything more deceptive than someone you're walking right alone to sow a seed of falsity in your life because you think you can trust them. But let God be true and every man be a liar. That's what the scripture says. Over and all, the truth of the Lord is the truth of the Lord. It doesn't matter what mouth something is coming out of. If it doesn't line up with the truth of God's word, let them be a liar and God be true. And so Peter describes then, here in the opening verses, something you've got to understand too about 2 Peter. Peter is close to death. Peter is nigh death. He may have even written this from the prison cell of Rome awaiting his death, but he is near and nigh death. And so while he is nearing death, he's just putting one more plug out there to the people about growing spiritually. It's amazing what things are prominent in your mind as you draw near to death. For Peter, it's like you need to continue growing your spirituality. Here's a man about ready to die, and upon his lips of death, he's like, you need to remember to grow in your spirituality. Could you imagine being near death and on your mind is like, I need to continue to grow in my spiritual things of God? That must be pretty important for a man that's looking into the face of death to say that you need to continue to grow in your spirituality and the genuine things of the Lord. Yet that is what he is saying. And the reason why he's saying that is because they were going to need to guard themselves against false teachers. And they were going to have to guard themselves with people bringing up ideas that the return of Christ wasn't certain. They needed to have in their spirit to know without a shadow of a doubt, I know he's coming back. He said he's going to. It's a promise. And just though it... Just, just because it didn't happen in my parents' generation or maybe not going to happen in my generation does not mean it is not so. We'll get into later whenever he spoke those words. He said a thousand years is as one day and a one day is a thousand years with the Lord. You know what he's telling us? Our timing is not God's timing. We're on two different timetables. But you can rest assured the certainty of his promises. Does our New Testament scripture not say he is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness? But he's what? He's faithful to it. He is faithful to it. And so Peter describes this growth of genuine things in order to detect and discern the counterfeit things that may arise. The writer of Hebrews admonishes the same. I wish to go there tonight. Hebrews chapter number 5 and verse number 13 Hebrews 5 and verse number 13, the Bible states these words, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat 
belongeth to them that are of full age, which many translate that are of maturity, even those who by reason of use, by reason of use of strong meat, mind you, had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I think it's in Corinthians, it also speaks about how as babes we desire the sincere milk of the word of the Lord. There is that comparison between milk and strong meat. Uh, some of those common basic things, milk of God's word, but then some of the stronger matters, uh, standards, if you will, some stronger things of God's word. The writer of Hebrews says that if you just use, if you just use the word for milk, he said you're a babe, uh, it's unskillful. But if you come to the strong meat aspect, a full age or a full maturity. That's growth, right? Because from babe to full maturity, there's a growing process. He says, so from when you, when you advance from the milk of the word of God and you grow incrementally through your life to where you can handle the strong meat of the word of God, look now, he says, even those who by reason of use, of use of the strong meat, have their senses exercised, discern both good and evil. So, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we need not always remain at the babe milk level of the word of the Lord, all right? And just obedience at a milk level of the word of the Lord. Because at that level, our senses, according to God's word, are not totally capable as a babe to discern the good and the evil, just like a natural child at a young age is not capable of discerning good and evil. He says, but as we grow and as we uh, process and get more mature in the things of God, he says, then because of that strong meat and that maturing and that growth, he says, it enables us to discern both good and evil just as a real child in the natural process of growth starts to learn the difference between good or evil or right and wrong, so on and so forth. And so as we mature and grow and we obey the word and we obey not just the basic things of God's word, but the stronger things of God's word, our senses become, if you will, aware and enlightened, amen, to distinguish both good and evil. And so Peter, of course, is in that place. He's telling us, going to tell us in the word that we need to grow in these things, grow in our spirituality. Why? Because by virtue of growing and maturing in our spirituality is going to help us determine what's good and evil what's true and untrue that comes into our life amen that all happens along in our growth process the bible says in first timothy 4 16 verse number 16 the bible says in first timothy 4 he says take heed paul right into timothy take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine continue in them speaking of the doctrine for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. It's interesting, Paul telling Timothy that really, in essence, doctrine is a means or a vehicle to salvation. Now, here's a big one, all right? It's a means to salvation. But whenever we talk about old age, when we talk about maturity in Christ, when we talk about maturity in our walk with Lord, Maturity in our walk with the Lord isn't based so much upon what you know. It's like if you know, man, I know there are everything there is. No, man, I've been Wednesday night Bible study for years now. Bless God. Genesis, Revelation, I know it. Maturity isn't so much based upon what you know, but it's based upon what you practice of what you know. 
<laughs> it's what you practice of what you know. And we'll look at this a little bit later before we get done tonight. Because there is a difference in knowledge and experiential knowledge. Knowledge that you live out in experience. And so uh, maturity is that knowledge that we live out by experience. It's taking the principle and applying it to real life. He says, now look now, he says, by reason, Hebrews 5 verse 14, he says, by reason of use, which basically means this, that strong meat, that place, that growth, that maturity, by reason of use, those things become not like a weekend thing, but they are a habit of your body and it's a habit of your mind. It's something that you do over and over again. It's a maturity that you reach that you don't just touch and then leave, but it's something that you use over and over again in your daily life. It's something that you practice, we might even say, over and over in your daily life. They have in the medical world what's called disuse atrophy, which is basically this. People in this congregation have probably experienced it. It's when any member of your body has been immobile for a period of time. Maybe it's been bound up in a cast or such for weeks. It had no use, and as a result of that, it has disuse atrophy. And what that usually means is whenever that comes out of that cast or it comes out of that place of being immobile, you've got to go to physical therapy. And the reason why you've got to go to physical therapy, the reason why it's necessary, because it's got to reintroduce use into that member of the body. Because as it was in that cast, muscle and sinew has shrunk up and it's gotten weakened. It's not as strong as it used to be. Compared to this arm over here that you've been lifting all the pots and pans with and emptying the trash if you didn't have no other, you know, uh, regulation set to you. But because one was being used daily and the other one stayed over there dormant. Amen. And so uh, this is kind of what the writer of Hebrews is relating to. It's by reason of use that that constant use of that allows it to have the strength, allows it to have the capability to function the way that it needs to function. Now let's go on. I don't want to wear out, you know, just one the introduction uh, Simon Peter verse number one Simon Peter it, it denotes him a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ uh, in in first Peter it was normally just Peter but he relates himself in this one as Simon Peter uh, and that's good nothing wrong with that Simon bespeaks more of his own nature Peter speaks more of his new nature uh, in the Lord do you remember the Lord said uh, he said thou art thou art Peter and upon this rock I'm going to build my church Whenever Peter gave the recognition of who Jesus is, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there's a change really from that point forward that you don't see much use of Simon, which is his old nature type of personality, but you see much more of Peter's new nature personality. But Peter says, and this is important for our host study on 2 Peter, Peter is, and he notes this himself, he says, Peter is a, a servant of Jesus. Now, that word servant is interesting in our Bibles. Anytime that we see it and it's used like this, that word servant is interesting because we have a certain concept in modern-day America what servant is. And a lot of times we view Bible through the way that we view our English culture. And that's not always right. And so whenever Peter says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, in the Greek it's the word doulios, which really relates to this. Peter, a slave. Of Jesus Christ even in that culture when we talk about servant and slave we are really talking entirely about two different things the King James has really softened the relationship here between Peter and the Lord to be in servant role when you're a servant you voluntarily make yourself in a position when you're a slave 
you've been bought and you're owned by somebody. The reason why this is so important even for a modern day church is because some of us are trying to serve as servants of the Lord rather than slaves unto God. And, and, yeah. And so this, this word dulios, there are at least six Greek words for the word servant. But dulios is not one of them. It's slave. And so when we understand that, this indicates that Peter, not as a servant, but more so as a slave. And again, we'll get to this in just a little bit, our concept of slave. We have certain colorings around that too for modern day America. We're thinking of the South and the North, and we're thinking about, you know, 1968 and backward, and we're thinking about all these things. But again, you have an entirely, you have the wrong concept if you're trying to view it through Americanized eyes. And so here he is, Peter's trying to indicate as a slave then, I'm submitted to Jesus. And I'm submitted to his lordship. What he says goes. He's the master. I'm the slave. I'm under his authority. I have no inherent authority of my own. <sighs> Do you understand the gravity of that? Like the Lord specifying certain things in his word and scripture for us, being slaves of Christ, and then we want to raise our hand and say, well, I'm not in total agreement with that, God. You know what? In the position of being a slave, you really don't have a say-so in the matter. <laughs> we, we don't have a say-so in the matter. In the Roman world, which would be during this time, a slave was one who was considered by society to be given to be as a human tool. In other words, they were possessed by a lord. They were possessed by a master. And so a servant then, again, gives service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. <laughs> what did Paul say? I am not my own? Huh? He is speaking in those terms of slave-master, slave-lord relationship. My life is not my own. It belongs to him. The book of Acts tells us when it talks about the church whom he purchased with his own blood. You, you, you've been bought. I don't have any rights. I, I don't have any rights except my obedience to the one who has bought me. Amen. And so in our modern day English, whenever you start talking about, you start talking about servant, you know, for us in modern day, of course, that implies a voluntary service when we talk about servant. And when we talk about slave in modern day America, you know, then we have all these racial associations, you know, uh, that, that, that connotate around that. But if you think, again, through modern day American eyes, both of those words are going to be totally misunderstood. In the Greek culture, dulios or slave described a person who served involuntarily, all right, and had no choice as to whether they would serve or not. They didn't have a choice. Dulios <clears throat> designated one who was born. This is interesting. It designated one who was even born as a slave. For you and I, we were bought, but you know what? We were also born a slave. You know how? The moment we were born again. The writer of Romans said, to whom ye yield yourselves servants, to obey his servants ye are. And so whenever you're born again of the water and the spirit, you were born as a slave through your new birth. And so here's the interesting thing about being a slave. You don't like 
me saying that because of the connotation of modern-day America, all right? But here's the importance of us being a slave. We serve another, not ourselves. We serve another without any disregard, without any regard to our own interests. That's what a slave's about. I serve someone else without any regard to my own interests, my own desires, my own wants, my own appetites. For that matter, I serve another without any regard to anybody else's master or Lord's wants or desires. What is Paul setting us up here? Because there's going to come some false teachers. There's going to come some false doctrines. And you know what he's saying? You're already a slave to somebody. And there's only one interest that you need to be concerned about. And that's his. So it doesn't matter what all these other voices are saying. Because you only need to give ear to the voice to the one who has bought you. Hallelujah. Man, that is good, good advice for today in our world. You don't need to give credence to any other voices that speak. You don't need to give credence to any other doctrines that are out there that seem believable. You don't need to give. You just need to give credence to the one who has bought you, the one that you are a slave to. You don't need to sink any of your interests anywhere else except in the one. Amen. So we got to settle, Paul, Peter rather is telling them, they got to settle who they are a slave to. Got to settle who purchased us. I dare to say in the modern day church that there are people living their lives as runaway slaves. Amen. Matthew 25 verse 21, look at this. Because this is the power of the word dulios. Matthew 25, verse 21. This is whenever there have been, you know, the handing out of, of the talents, the, the, the parable of the talents that's handed out, right? <clears throat> and uh, the, the increase that was made with each individual with the talents and so on and so forth. And uh, at the end of them coming back and giving a report about what they have done with what has been given to them, Matthew 25, verse 21. His Lord said unto him, notice, his Lord said to him, well done, thou good and faithful servant in our English Bibles. But in the Greek, it's dulios. Well done, thou good and faithful slave. Oh, I'm appalled. You know, because we all talk about, oh, one of these days we're going to stand before the Lord and say, enter on into the joy of the Lord. Thou, that well done, thou good and faithful servant. But servants like I'm served today if I want to, not if I don't want to tomorrow. It's all voluntary. No. Thou good and faithful slave. <laughs> What's that mean? Lord says, go hither. He says, I go. Why? Because I'm a slave. He says, I need you to do this. You say, I go. You don't ask questions. You don't put up a committee and see if we're going to get some votes about whether it's right or wrong. No. It's good and faithful slave. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And so Peter's going to tell us in the second chapter about a group of false teachers that will come among them, among, not outsiders, insiders, among them that's going to be propagating some, the scripture calls them damnable hearsays, even denying the Lord, Master, the Lord who that bought them. But right now, what's he trying to affirm? He said, I'm a, he said, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm also talking to them that have obtained the precious faith with us. He says, I'm a slave. 
He said, are you? I'm a slave. I'm, I'm trying to talk to other like-minded slaves out there. And he says, I'm talking to you all because I'm telling you, we, we've obtained the same level of like precious faith with the Lord. We are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to get that in your mind because they're going to try to become some people that's going to try to shift you from him being the Lord of your life. Amen. He says, to them that have obtained, the lo- obtained like precious faith. Like precious means they have obtained the same privileges that the Apostle Peter had. They, they, they have equal standing or footing, just like the Apostle Peter. It didn't matter if they was Jew or Gentile. Because of their experience, they have the same level of standing as the Apostle Peter. There is no one any better or any less than good. We all have equal standing. With our equal standing comes equal privilege and responsibility. Amen. We all stand at a level spot before the cross of Calvary. Amen. It's like precious. It was the same word that was used when they would talk about strangers or foreigners who were given equal citizenship in a city, meaning that we are all come, we all come through the same door. We all have the same responsibilities and requirements, but we have the same privileges and promises. Amen. We all come into this thing at an equal spot. And so the, the, the faith that they received or the faith that they obtained on this equal footing, they've obtained with the rest of the church, Jew and Gentile church, amen, the early church, amen, in the book of Acts, same footing. It's no different. As a matter of fact, when you read in Acts 14, verse 27, we talk about this concept, an idea of faith or a saving faith or a, doc, a dogma, if you will, or a set of beliefs, faith. Acts 14, verse number 27 speaks about a door of faith. Our door of faith has been opened. Let's think in just a real literal sense right now. You could probably go out right now and buy a hollow door with cardboard in it. Pretty cheap, couldn't you? You know, one of those just old cheap doors. Just a door. Little value, not really worth much, you know. If you stepped on it just wrong, your foot's going straight through it, you know. If someone wanted to break in, they just break right through the door. Even if it don't come open, they can just make entrance because those things are just hollow. A little cardboard or whatever inside there. Not much value. When we talk about a door of faith, that door may not be worth much, but if you put that door on the front of a palace and it is the means by giving you access to the palace, an elaborate palace, you've just increased the value and the worth of the door because of what it gives you access to. He says in Acts 14, 27, that there is a door of faith. And the preciousness of faith that even Peter is speaking of in his book is precious because of what that faith opens us up to. It opens opens us up to some glorious things in the Lord. For that matter, Hebrews 4.2 says this, For unto us was the gospel preached as well unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. It says we, they both received the same thing, but one was mixed with faith, and faith made it profitable. Faith made it profitable. And when we talk about faith, even as Peter is talking about faith, faith is just more than just a mental ascent to truth, I believe. Faith is just more than a mental ascent to truth, I believe. But faith, in this word, includes then not just the mental ascent of belief, but a surrendering of our will to what we believe in. 
to the degree that it affects our behavior and conduct and way of life. Faith is more than a belief. Faith, faith is believing enough that you'll submit your will to what you're believing in. And then it'll have influence on your life. <laughs> Someone say amen. We're saved by grace through. Mm-hmm. That's because it's more than just a belief. Your will is involved. And when your will gets involved, it affects your conduct. Someone say amen. 43. We got to run, don't we? Get my running shoes on. Amen. <clears throat> he says, this precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior. This is still verse 1. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Through righteousness. This is through his righteousness. We know Isaiah, our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is an unrighteous, no, not one. But whenever we come to the Lord and we have this uh, gift of salvation that happens into our life, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 said that he did not impute to us our transgressions. But in Romans it says that he imputed to us his righteousness. So instead of transgressions that we should have bore, we got to bear his righteousness. And so we come to the same level, equal standing, through his righteousness righteousness and not our own because it wouldn't even mark up to being anything but it says through through the righteousness of God and our savior Jesus Christ and I'm just going to point this out just kind of as a little a little stop a little pause right here the literal wording of that in the Greek is this the righteousness of our God and savior Jesus Christ and the reason why that's important to us as apostolics one God believers that there is a rule in the Greek language that says this, and just listen to me, when two singular nouns, namely God and Savior, when two singular nouns, which are not proper nouns, fall into the same article, the article is our, they refer to the same entity. What that means is this, the second noun refers to the same person mentioned with the first noun. So when it says our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're not talking about two gods. We're talking about one Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Father of creation, right? Leading up to the Son of redemption, amen, the Holy Ghost and regeneration. So I just kind of threw that out there, bonus. Ah, the lights go off, cha-ching. Amen. Our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Savior, everybody say Savior. This is an important word to the Greek world. Savior is an important word to the Greek world. As a matter of fact, the state of religion of Rome, the Caesar of Rome was known as the savior of the world. That's what he was known as in their culture and in their, in their religion. And so when you have Jesus Christ as our God and savior, that totally is an offense to the Roman rule and the Roman government and their leadership. Because the Christians are saying Jesus Christ is our Savior. And Roman is saying Caesar is our Savior. <laughs> so we got something going on. Even so much that in that day, a physician that helped with the sick, that, that nursed them back to health, and, and, and also captains of armies that helped bring deliverance and battle and brought safety to their warriors, both these two occupations, you might call them, a physician and a captain of an army, both were many times called soter, which is the Greek word for savior. A physician was known as a savior, and a captain of an army was known as a savior. Isn't it interesting then that Christ? our Lord would also then be known to us as Savior because there is no physician like our 
great physician that brings health. And there is no captain like our captain that brings deliverance and also safety in the time of need. Verse number two, going on. Give me a little bit. He said, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Uh, now, Peter, again, he's speaking here predominantly to saved people. Yet he's telling this, this, this should be like one of these wow moments. He's talking to saved people, but he's telling saved people that grace and peace still needs to be multiplied. Whew. What? Yeah, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. That's the story for all the saved, still yet today. We still need grace and peace being multiplied. And here it is, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge. Everybody say knowledge. The knowledge of the Lord. We'll look at this just here in a little bit because that word knowledge there isn't just, again, it isn't just intellectual knowledge. It's experiential. Knowledge that's experienced, that's lived out, that's practiced. Grace and peace is multiplied by that. It's knowing Jesus Christ, if you will, in his lordship. Your slave, he's master, he's lord. Your grace and peace increases as you know him as lord. Hmm. Hmm. As I know him as lord, as I obey him as lord, grace and peace just arises the more that I recognize and are in obedience and tandem with him being the lord of my life. Look how it's ordered. It's grace, then peace. It's evident that those that experience his grace will experience his peace. Amen. And the peace that he's talking about, the literal peace that he's talking about right here, it means this, the binding or joining together what is broken or divided, the setting the divided parts at one again. Grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know something was broken all the way back at Eden? Right? There was a relationship broken all the way back at Eden. But whenever we come to the like precious faith, as the apostle Peter did, there comes this multiplication of grace and peace in our life. And there's the joining together what was broken, what was divided once again. Because until that day, you know what's happening? We as mortal men are at war with a holy God. We are at war with a holy God. And peace in its simplest definition is a stop or an absence of war. And whenever we stop being at war with God and we rather become at one with God, then there is peace that abounds. The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse number 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says grace and peace be multiplied. That means to be made full, to be made to grow, to be made to increase. As our knowledge of God grows experiencing practice as our knowledge of God grows grace and peace is multiplied in our life again that knowledge is not just intellect oh I know this no it's putting that into practice there is a big difference for me personally or anybody for that matter there's a big difference if I grabbed a book off the bookshelf and it's all about sky jumping and me reading a 250 page book about sky jumping about other people's experience sky jumping on how to sky jump be a total difference in that and me suiting up in the plane, got my parachute on, doors open, winds flapping, <sighs> 50,000 feet or whatever, 20,000, we'll go 50. And me jumping. You understand? It's one thing being knowledgeable of something by having intellect of it, and there's another thing about being knowledgeable of something because you've been there and done that. Peter's saying, 
the grace and peace being multiplied in your life isn't based upon how much intellect you have about God, but it's about what things you allow to be played out and practiced in your life that you know of God. And he's going to come to show us as we go through. He says, when it comes to these false teachers and stuff, he says, it isn't your intellect that's going to get you through. It's going to be your experience of practicing what you had known. Hold on. Hold. It's going to be our practice. Not just our knowledge. Our practice that's going to get us through. So the solution, and you can stand with me. I'll come too close. The time has turned red. I mean, stop. Peter then is going to underscore over and over again that the solution to false doctrine, the solution to false teachers is knowledge, experiential knowledge, knowledge that is experienced, practice. Like 16 or so times in just three chapters, he talks about knowledge, the knowledge of the truth. And there is a big difference just knowing and then practicing. It, it, it's, it's illustrated real well for us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where it shows the two types of knowledges. One that's just intellectual knowledge and one is that knowledge in practice. It's right here in this verse. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. I, now I know in part that's that intellectual. In part. He says, but then shall I know. That is by experience, by practice, even also as I am known. It is that full panorama of knowledge that goes beyond intellect, but it's intellect with practice. You have both sides, if you will, of the hemispheres to put together to make a whole. That's this, what I know, I can, I can justify and quantitate because I've done. You hear me? It's kind of like reading up, reading up on how to change your alternator. Read all day on it. Matter of fact, there are probably people got out different ways to do it. <laughs> but then do it, and you can quantify what you knew to be true because you've done. And there is a place in our relationship with God that we need to get beyond just from what we have heard to practice that we can quantify what the preacher has preached. That there can be the harmony between what has been said and what has been done. That you know what? It was exactly like they said it was right. Peter says that's what you're going to need in order to combat false doctrines that's going to come. He says because they are coming and they've always came and they always will come. And so we got to grow in the knowledge of God. We got to grow. We have the same. We have the same opportunities as great Peter did. And so we have all been afforded the same place. Can we just raise our hands right now to the Lord? Bow our heads in this place, Father. God, I need you today. I pray, Lord, you would help us, Lord Jesus, from this point forward as we are springboard. God, into this study on the book of 2 Peter. I pray, oh God, bolster our faith. God, bolster our faith. Let it be more than just an ascent, Lord God, to truth. But God, let it be a surrender of our will and a reordering and managing, Lord, of our conduct. Help us, God, to attest to being slaves, not servants, Lord Jesus, that serve in, Lord, sometimes and sometimes, but God, slaves, God, that have no interest of our own, but we are at the beck and the call of our master, and yet we are in a love relationship with that. We're okay with that. We like that because we like who we're serving. Hallelujah. We have a relationship and a love and 
an endorsement with who we're serving. Hallelujah. We know, God, that you have our best interest in mind. I pray, oh God, today touch each and every heart and mind and soul. Help us, God, as there were words given for that day of false teachers and false doctrines that perhaps in the next few weeks you're giving us words for our day, Lord Jesus, with false doctrines, Lord, and teachings, God, that are proliferating through our world, even, God, as it was in Peter's day, in and among the church. God, for there are things that are blossoming up, God, that people that have no variety, God, placement position, Lord God, may, Lord, say, well, you know what? That isn't like it used to be. You don't have to worry about that. But, God, we got to take all that and measure it against your word, the experiential, Lord God, what we've experienced, knowledge of God in our own life. God, that we would keep these things for safekeeping unto a holy master, a holy Lord. God, I love you and I appreciate you for it, Jesus, in your heavenly name. God bless your people, Father, this week. God, strengthen them. Help them, Lord, to be empowered. I pray, oh, Lord, by that spirit that they have received. God, those like precious, Lord Jesus, things that they have had. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. And the church say amen. Hallelujah. God bless you this evening. Let's come back Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. We got church. Let's do church. Amen. God bless you in Jesus' name. I got stuff up here if anybody wants it to. I got a book on Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.